gonna, I'm gonna sit down. This was a communication from my soul, and I'm gonna write down everything I'm afraid of, and I'm gonna stop running away from it. I'm gonna stop running away from the feelings, the objects, and the people that I'm afraid of. I'm gonna lean into those sharp edges. I'm gonna confront them. I'm gonna at least develop a desensitization to these feelings. Um, and I just had this instant idea to draw a pyramid on a piece of paper and write all my fears on the pyramid. Least fear on the bottom step, biggest fear on the top step. And then I was gonna systematically confront these fears one at a time until I got to the top of the pyramid and I wasn't afraid anymore. Hello and welcome to the Spirit Box Podcast, where we explore folklore, magic, mysticism, the world of the spirits, and everything in between. For episode 80, it is my great honor and privilege to be joined by Jeff Thompson. Jeff is a prolific author and teacher. He's a BAFTA award-winning writer. He is a highly regarded martial artist. He has a seven-degree black belt in Shotokan Karate, along with a first-degree black belt in Judo. And he has worked some of the toughest nightclub doors in the UK. But one of the really interesting things about Jeff, one of many, as you're going to find out in, in the show, is that Jeff became a doorman to face and overcome his fear of violent confrontation. Now, he's written 50 books, several multi-award winning films, three stage plays, hundreds of articles, many published in national magazines and broadsheets. His work, Romans 1220, has been adapted into a feature film, uh, Romans, starring Alanda Bloom. Now, I'm sure you'll agree that's a remarkable resume, and, and yet Jeff will be the first one to tell you that none of it matters, that it all pales into significance against the goal of winning one's will, which Jeff will define in, in the hour and a half to come, an hour if you're listening to the regular show. And he takes us through the power and true nature of forgiveness. In the Plus Show, we discuss how autonomy of will extends into what we consume and take into our bodies in all form, and also what we put out in terms of our behavior. And Jeff explains the importance of alignment of self and the causal body in, in passionate detail. This is just really, really powerful stuff, and I, I really encourage you to listen all the way through. Because he asks us ultimately to confront the truth of our individual behavior and take back our autonomy from the parasites that influence us. This is powerful stuff. I think you're all going to get an awful lot from it. And I'm, and I'm really excited that this is the first show of 2022, because we're in that time of... People's, people's heads are in that space of making goals and, and aspirations for the year. And I think this is a really, this is a really good springboard, you know, for, for you to jump on into that, into the new year and, and, and think about what you want from it, what you really want. But maybe stop bullshitting yourself a bit, but don't be too cross to yourself. Everyone does it. And it's really, really hard. It's a really hard habit to break. Now, as is tradition, a big thank you to my Ank Patreon members. Thank you, Michelle, Merrily, Marco, Jen, Hannah, Flora, Eric, Desiree, Austin, Ali, Carlyes, Brennan, Tyler, Madeline, Jorge, Tony, Savannah, Icaro, William O, Roland B, Steph, Tim, Tu, Wei, Pamela. Thank you each and every one of you. I'm really grateful for your support and um, I hope you enjoy this show. Right, let's get into it. Thank you.
is my great honor and privilege to to welcome to the show uh, somebody who I've followed for for many many years. So I'm a little bit a little bit. Um, I, well, what's the word when you're kind of awestruck? This is, is, yeah, when I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying not to fanboy too much now. <laughs> Try and keep my questions. Uh, Jeff Thompson, it's an honor and a privilege to have you in the show. Welcome to the Spirit Box. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Um, Jeff, you're uh, uh, you've an incredible array of, of achievements, and and most notably, you 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 started your career as uh, a martial artist and looking at the reality of martial arts through your your work on the on the doors of Coventry uh, as to what what really works what's the reality of of of, of violence i guess uh, and that's taking you on to being a, a prolific author a filmmaker a, 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 an incredible array of achievements that you, you you've you've used that learning to kind of facilitate creativity and 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 drive and um Really, I'd, I'd just love if you could introduce yourself um, to the audience and give them a bit more of your background in detail. Yeah, well, um, I write. That's what I do. That's my, my, the pen is my resurrection stone. It's how I individuate, to quote Jung, or I bring up anything that needs to be processed. I create an eye with the pen and I write it down. <clears throat> and the reason I've been so prolific is because I've had uh, a lot of dark material I was abused when I was a kid, which left me um, it left me compromised, uh, mentally compromised, dissonant, uh, confused, um, angry as I got older, uh, full of rage, <clears throat> which never found a proper outlet, just created lots of depression. Uh, the depressions, you know, were so bad that you'd I'd be waking up in a in a bed, you know, that was damp with sweat. It's still dark. A long day, a long day when you wake up depressed, that feeling, that presence in your chest, that weight, and you look at your wife and you know she doesn't understand. She's afraid of you because you're following around the house like a lost puppy because you're, because you're so afraid of the feelings in your own body. She doesn't understand it. The doctor wants to give you tablets, and you know that's not the answer, even though you can't articulate why. And, uh, you know, your family just presume that you're broken uh, and that you're damaged goods, and, you know, that's how it's going to be. You're never going to fulfil your dreams. You're never going to have a fulfilling life because, you know, these feelings have created a prison around you. So they're a harbinger of doom. Um, so that's the early part of my life. So I was married with um, four children and thinking to myself, I can't even, I'm a second down in karate. I've gone down that path, but I can't even protect my own. I can't protect myself. I don't even trust my own hands in the dark. So I can't protect my children. I feel completely inadequate. But couldn't even trust my own hands. I couldn't protect myself. Couldn't protect my wife. Couldn't protect my, this is how I felt. I felt vulnerable in the world. Um, and I'd had a lot of these depressions and, you know, I'd done what everybody else did. I'd pick up a book and on the back cover blurb, the author would promise to tell me not only what, what I was suffering with, but how I could overcome it. But the author lied, or, or at least he didn't tell the truth. Because when you go into the book, it was the same old stuff. It was sanitised. 
it was it was somebody that either didn't know the truth or somebody that was afraid to say the truth. It was somebody that was afraid to look at it and put it out there. And a lot of people like this when they write. They're, they're very afraid to actually tell the truth because it courts judgment. When you tell the true truth, you know, you know, you are, uh, you are going to court judgment because people are going to ask you to qualify it. My feeling, what I learned from writing the truth is that if you really write the truth, if you really write the truth because you've experienced the truth and you are the truth, um, it doesn't get attacked very much because it qualifies itself. And if people think about attacking it, the moment they approach it, it's like they're taking on the whole universe because the truth is the truth. There's nothing to qualify. It just is. You just feel it. It resonates. So I was getting these periodic depressions. Um, and then on this one particular depression, I just hit this place. I'd hit rock bottom. And it's, you know, when you feel as though there's no answer to it. The middle class professionals haven't got the answer. The people that love you haven't got the answer. The answer's not out there. All of the doors that I'm looking, all the doors I'm trying to open aren't giving me the answer. And I just have this sudden realization that that's true. And I have to go inwards. And I just feel this outrage. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm, I can't live like this. I can't live like this. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down. This was a communication from my soul. And I'm going to write down everything I'm afraid of. And I'm going to stop running away from it. I'm going to stop running away from the feelings, the objects, and the people that I'm afraid of. I'm going to lean into those sharp edges. I'm going to confront them. I'm going to at least develop a desensitization to these feelings. Um, <clears throat> and I just had this instant idea to draw a pyramid on a piece of paper and write all my fears on the pyramid. Least fear on the bottom step, biggest fear on the top step. And then I was going to systematically confront these fears one at a time until I got to the top of the pyramid and I wasn't afraid anymore. And something happened. The moment I, I, I had a, um, a strategy and I was curious, I thought, well, what will happen if I do this? Because I've tried running, I've tried medication, I've tried all those things. It just made it worse. You know, it just, it just made everything worse. The moment I became curious, my brain clicked in because I recognized many years later that the brain can't process curiosity and fear at the same time. So the moment you're curious, you can't be, you can't be curious about something and afraid of it. Because you're not saying, I'm terrified of this, I want to run away. You're turning into it saying, let's investigate it. Let's have a look. Then the harbinger of doom becomes a messenger of hope. This messenger of hope is saying, all of these things that are rising up, they're rising up as fear and anxiety and dread because you're not processing them. They need to be processed. You have this massive reservoir of energy. It needs to create, and you're not given it anywhere to create. So I do this pyramid, and I wrote down all the things I was afraid of, and I started to systematically confront them. And the, the, the depression didn't go instantly, but the fear went instantly, and I was suddenly full of hope and curiosity. Um, and I had a background noise of fear, but I thought, well, that's what I want. I want that feeling. I want to feel it. I want to lean into it. I want to understand it. I want to investigate it. I want to get my, my feeling at the time was to get a desensitization to it. There was a, I was aware even at that level that I wasn't really afraid of things. I was afraid of my own biology. My own biology was being used against me 
um, by my own subpersonalities, by external forces in the world, by invisible forces. My own biology has been used to keep me in this flesh and blood prison. At, you know, I was at some points in my life, I was shrunk to a room in a house. My brother Ray, uh, who was a very entrepreneurial spirit, um, he used alcohol to deaden his fear, and his reality shrunk to a stall in a kitchen in the shittiest tower block in Coventry, eventually to a hospital bed where I watched him implode and explode and die from alcoholism. And the biggest lesson my brother taught me was that when you listen to fear, you will shrink to you will shrink to the point that even um, even your body will feel like a vast universe. It will feel too big and too empty. So I started to lean into the fears, and they very quickly went. The top fear on my pyramid was a fear of violent confrontation. I had a fear of violent confrontation, so I decided I would aim for that. But a curious thing happened along the way. As I started to climb the pyramid, obviously I grew in wisdom. I developed strategies. I developed weapons, you know, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Um, I'd got reference points, so I go, well, I overcame that fear, and that fear is only separated. They're, they're, you know, these these fears I'm I'm confronting, they might seem as though they're disparate. A fear of spiders and a fear of violent confrontation might seem disparate, but they're only separated by degree, and it's the same biological release of feelings, of hormones. So, as I started to overcome these um, enfolded fears, these obvious fears. Fear of spiders, fear of dentists, you know, uh, a fear of going into karate competitions. Um, uh, I started to, as I removed these placeholders, these scabs, I started to reveal hidden fears, the, the enfolded fears. So I was afraid of my mom. I was afraid of my wife. I was afraid of middle class professionals. I was afraid of change. And change is the only constant, but I was afraid of change. There was any change in my environment, it felt like a threat. Um, so I started to write down these invisible fears. I was afraid of my mum abandoning me or my mum uh, withdrawing love. I was afraid of my wife for the same reason. And they did use that as a weapon unconsciously, but that's what they used. So I started to write those down and those monsters went onto my pyramid as well. I recognized that I was afraid, the very success I was chasing, I was afraid of success because I didn't really understand what success was. But where I grew up as a lower working class kid with a very limited um, education and very strong conditioning, I, I, where I grew up, you know, success was like a lottery win or some, you know, some fantastic story invention that got you a seven figure free book deal. You know, all of these rare anomalies that you'd read in the tabloids, that's what we thought success was. If you had have cornered me and say, what does success look like? I wouldn't really have known. I sat with a rough sleeper once. This was a good example of where I was. This is a couple of years ago. I sat with a rough sleeper in a cafe. And I said to him, what would you like to do? If, you know, you're on the street, you've been on the street for what would you like to do? He said, I'd like to do big business, big business. And I would employ people that are struggling I would that's what I would like to do I said that's really good that's a great ambition but big business in what and he said uh well you know just big business I said but anything specific is there anything that you specifically want to do and he goes well no just big business 
And that was it. That's where I was. We had this idea of success, but I had no idea what it was. So, of course, it's elusive. You're never going to find it. I was so uneducated that I didn't know how to make more money other than to do three jobs, three menial jobs, which I did for a while. I didn't know that if I increased my skills, if I increased my worth in the workplace, if I, if I educated myself, if I expanded my intellect, if I found truth, I could, I, could, uh, I could earn double or triple or quadruple. In the end, I was able to earn a month's money in an hour just because I had knowledge. I didn't understand that. I didn't have no idea. I was, I was always in debt. I didn't know how to manage the, the energy of money. So I was always, uh, you know, I was always owing money. I was always spending more than I've got. And I didn't understand that if I educated myself, if I dedicated myself to something, I didn't have to sweep floors, you know. Um, and I just, I just didn't know, understand that as a concept. It wasn't something that I, compl- that I kind of understood. That school, university was never even mentioned. Well, I started to climb this pyramid and I started to get knowledge and I started to teach what I'd learned. Um, and people liked it because it was real. It was pragmatic. It was saying, you've got this fear. But what is the fear? You're not really afraid of changing jobs, of leaving a relationship or of traveling the world or of stepping outside of societal mores. You're not really afraid of that. You're afraid of the, the biological reaction to that. You're afraid of the body, you know, your body's reaction, you know, like the adrenal rush, the, the drip, drip of anxiety. Um, and you, you, you don't understand this powerful um, urge to run away, which is like your body doesn't think you're going to do a public talk. Your body thinks you're facing a saber-toothed tiger. So it prepares you to fight to the death or run away. Neither of them are appropriate. So, so I started to go right down to the minutiae and think, what is it that I'm actually afraid of? I'm afraid of these feelings. How can I overcome these feelings? Well, by learning about them. How can I learn about them? Not from a book. You know, a book will tell me, you know, a book will tell me what they are, but I've still got to experience them. So I put myself into situations where I felt those feelings. And I learned to manage them. I learned to create an eye wall. <clears throat> so I, I located my observer self. So I was always aware that there was a point where adrenaline would rise up, anxiety would rise up, and it would rise up to here, to the mind door here in the plender gap. This is where the mind door is. This is where all anxiety, all feelings rise and congregate before we engage them. When we engage them, we're incarnated by them. So if I engage fear, I become fear. If I engage lust, I become lust. If I engage anger, I become anger. But I realized there was a part of me that was always at the back watching those feelings, observing them. And when I became aware of that part that was observing them, I sat in the very center of that part and I created an eye wall. So like you know, if you imagine the eye of a storm, so in the eye of the storm, it's still and quiet and there are blue skies. And while there's turmoil all around. So I recognized that if I could locate the observer, it didn't matter how many feelings that were going on around me. I could sit in the very center of them and observe them and also manage them. I could observe them until they dissipated because if you don't engage them, they have no reality. Or if I wanted to, I could draw them into the Barbican, draw them into these little entries inside my mind and just 
watch them until they dissolved, or I could actually take them in and sit down and pick up a pen and I could write them into a book or a film or a play, or I could put my training shoes on and I could use them to uh, pilot a run, or I could you know, use them to do three times the normal workload of a, of a healthy man if I could manage them. So this is the sort of thing I started to learn. I started to teach it to people. And because it was pragmatic, because it was something they could do, and because the autonomy was back with them, because I was saying to them, listen, I've tried shaking my fist at the government and blame them, and I've tried blaming my parents, and I've tried blaming uh, you know, society, and I've tried blaming God, and it, none of it works. I said, I'll tell you, it doesn't work, and I've done it. I said, so the moment you, the moment you engage blame, you are incarnated into blame. You give blame life, and the blame is never ending. So you basically give your autonomy away. Because if I blame you, Dara, that means I can't be fixed and, until you make it right. If I blame the government, it means I can't be happy till the government get their shit together. And they're not going to, are they? When has the government or anybody else ever got their shit together? They don't because the world is whack-a-mole. The problem rises. If you push a problem down here, it rises there. We push it down here, it rises over here. No, this is a this is this is a game. It's whack-a-mole. It's an escape room. It isn't meant to be fixed. We're here. We're here um, to perfect the soul. Now, we're on the great earth to perfect the soul. It's the greatest training ground in the universe to perfect the soul. Even the Buddhas came to the great earth in order to perfect the way. It's very exciting and very um, privileged to have this opportunity. But if we make the problem, if we if we if we make the mistake of thinking that something's wrong with the world, um, and then we try to fix the world, that's like that's like trying to fix the horror film at the level of the screen. It doesn't make no difference. You can go and slash the screen, you can go and tear the screen down, but the, the film is still going to be exactly the same. So what I was saying to people is, uh, forget about them. Come back to yourself. Why don't you go come back to you? Come back to the projector. Change the film. Change the focus. You can do that. You can learn how to do that by going inwards. I said, and rather than, you know, rather than um, losing all your energy by uh, shouting and screaming at the world, come back in and change you. And when I started to study the Bibles and look at the exegesis of the hidden works, they all said the same, you know, um, you, the world is a, your projection. And if you're going to fix the world, it's got to be fixed at the level of you. And that's great because that's going, I haven't got 10,000 problems anymore, Donna. I've only got one problem, and that's not a problem. It's only a problem if I think it's a problem. It's actually just that I haven't got a clear view. And I can clear that view by going in and going, okay, let's have a look at fear. So I went from being afraid of spiders in the bath to standing on a nightclub door where people were trying to kill me. And I, and I built an eye wall that enabled me to sit in the center of that. Now, believe me, when when you can hold when you can hold that eye wall and when people are threatening to kill you, and that was very real. Like I said, I've said this many times. I've told this story, but four of my friends were murdered while I was working as a bouncer in Coventry. It was a violent city. You could start a fight in an empty room. It was that kind of place, you know. So um, you take what you learn there and you bring it and you bring it out into the world and you pass it on. And as you pass it on, it's like 
if I've got eighty percent of the solution, if I pass it, if I pass on what I've learned to you, I'm given the extra twenty percent. The extra twenty percent comes to me. So when I started to teach this um, as a concept or as a precept or as a or as a a way of uh, winning back autonomy, because our autonomy, of course, is lost to a myriad of different things. People liked it, so I started to write it down. I started to put it into books. There was a lot of resistance in me to do that because of all the, you know, all the fears came up. But same thing, when the fears rose up, I looked at the fears, I examined the fears, and I went into the minutiae of the fears and recognized that it was adrenaline. Most of it was from my reptilian brain, the old part of me that was going, you know, there's a bear coming for you, there's a saber-toothed tiger coming for you, run or hide or freeze. None of those things were appropriate. I recognized that if I was, if I'd got the courage to sit in those feelings and practice what the Buddha would call denotation. So I go, instead of saying, this is fear, this is anxiety, this is terror, I would go beyond the, the labels, go beyond the names, go into the very heart of the feelings. And what you feel in that place wasn't fear and terror and anxiety and depression. It was just a rush of chemicals. And if you and if you didn't engage those chemicals, those and those feelings and those thoughts that came from it, if you didn't engage them, if you just observed them, without trying to change them, without trying to fix them, if you just observe them, you get they have no life. So they rise up, they tempt you to engage. When we engage, we give them life. And then when we give them life, they perpetuate because they create karma in the world. And then of course, when they recede back. We have to pay for that karma. So I started to recognize, in short, what I'm saying is I started to recognize I had a choice. I didn't have to engage feelings. I didn't have to engage emotions. I didn't have to engage thoughts. Thoughts were floating around me all the time. It was my choice whether I observed them, if I, uh, whether I engaged them. If I engaged them or identified them, I gave them life. So I, I had the power of life and death over these semi-autonomous thought forms, over these approaching energies, over these concepts and precepts, these mores, these con- this conditioning. I was able to suddenly look and go, I have a choice. You don't have to engage that. So of course, the, uh, I ended up going on, on, on the nightclub to confront my ultimate fear, which is the fear of violence. Um, and when I, and when I went on the, I went, my first night proper was on a place called Buster's Nightclub. And it was like Sodom and Gomorrah and Pompeii brothel all mixed into one. It was frightening. It was exhilarating. It was colorful. It was multidimensional. Uh, and it, it, but it was quite terrifying as well. You know, it was just, it was like, it was just like this rush of everything I'd learned over the past couple of years was rushing at me in every every form, you know, fear, terror, seduction. And the first night I worked, I worked on this very tough door in a very tough city. Um, I remember thinking, this isn't for me. It was the longest night of my life. I mean, the lo- I, was, I had adrenaline from my toes right up to the crown of my head. And it took everything I got to keep control of my sub-vocalization and not to let the uh, not to let the feelings break my eye wall, because if the eye wall breaks, you become part of the storm. You know, you're lost. 
I just thought at the end of the night, I'm going to just tell John Anderson, the, door, the head woman, uh, thank you very much. I'm going to tick this off my list, but it's not for me. I've ticked it off my list, Doris, so it's okay. It's ticked off. I've confronted <laughs> violence. <laughs> and I sat down for a drink afterwards. And it was, it was kind of like the ante room. You know, everyone sat in the quiet bar afterwards, all the staff, and we'd had a drink. And we processed the night. And John Anderson said to me, you did really well. He said, you're a bit of a greenhorn. He said, you know, but you did well. You didn't run away. You didn't embarrass yourself. You didn't embarrass me. <clears throat> and he said, so if you want to carry on, you can stay for a little bit, and, you know. And, uh, and I just thought, just that one piece of, that one compliment that, from this legend, from this icon, from this god, um, I just thought I'll stay a bit longer. And I ended up staying for nearly a decade. But it was the greatest metaphysical experience of my whole life. People thought I was working as a nightclub bouncer. I wasn't. I was watching the projection of every one of my fears, not just the fears that I'd inherited and the fears that I'd learned, but the fears that were being projected, the fears that were being pumped into me every single day through the newspapers, through the, through the television news, through the dramas, through, docu through whatever was coming through the telly screen. Or I, I was able to see that in, in living manifestation, all those projections. And I just got to the point where I recognized that it was when I said to my wife one day, this is a violent city. Said, Everywhere I go in this city, there is violence. And she said, yeah, well, Jeff, there's a common denominator. It's everywhere you go. And I realized it was. I was getting into road rage fights. I was getting into fights at weddings and funerals. I was getting in fights at christenings. I would go somewhere and I was like a shit magnet. Everywhere I went, there was violence. And I rationalized it and justified it and other people helped me to do that, but it was me. And I realized that um, I was creating monsters um, with my own, from my own mind, with my own imagination, projecting them into the world. And I was forgetting I'd done that. And then I was creating tools and strategies and weapons and skills in order to, to defend myself against the very weapons I'd created and forgotten. When I realized that as a certainty, I was able to step away. I was able to go, well, I've created this and it's not how I want to live because it's the ninth circle of Dante's Inferno. It's horrible. It's violent. You know, I, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm um, polluted by the violence. And the seduction is actually damaging me. And when I, it's a longer story, but when I finally pulled away from the door, I watched over a period of time, Dara, I watched the violence fall away. I watched the nightclubs dissipate. Literally, the buildings disappeared. You know, some of them were knocked down and turned into houses. One of them became the hairdressers, which is absolutely no good for me, of course. <laughs> I'm wasting my time. I'm going, Charge me a search fee just for finding my hair. <laughs> I'll do my hair just with a wet wipe now. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, when, I, when I stopped engaging violence and I stopped engaging violent rhetoric and violent training and violent thinking, the violence fell away. That wasn't in my world. And not just, not just the presence of violence in my life, but the infrastructure, mm. the nightclubs, the pubs, they just disappeared. Um, and... As I changed, this took time. This is what I'm saying. As I changed, the world literally changed. It literally changed. 
now I live in a field in Stratford and, and I've got sheep outside my door and I've got the River Avon right in front of me and I've got a cafe that I walk to every day and my every day is, is, is doing something like this, studying mm. or talking to people um, and passing on what I've learned. Um, I've changed my reality and so I know, I know that when you change yourself, you change reality. It's, mm. it's a big story. It's a much bigger story. But the bottom line is I realized that there's nothing out there to fix. I just need to come back to myself. I need to come back to the very center, to my very own authentic self. Once you find the authentic self and you connect the authentic self to um, the universe or to God or uh, to the collective knowledge, to the egregore, whatever you want to call it, mm. once you connect to that, they go, oh, Jeff Thompson's away. He's won his will back. He's woke up. He's got a clear review. Um, he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. He doesn't know where he's going. So we're going to help him because mm-hmm. um, you've found your will. And they say, "There's a deal. we'll give you a deal. We will act as your uh, satellite navigation, a divine satellite navigation, and we'll guide you through this world. We'll show you what your dharma is, what you're here for, um, when to turn left, when to turn right, when to move forward, when to step back, what to eat, what to drink. Don't worry about money. We'll supply the money. Don't worry about accommodation. We'll, we'll supply a roof. Don't worry about transport. The transport will be arranged. All we need from you in exchange is your will. You surrender your will to us, and then you will become part of the greater will, and we'll show you exactly where to go. But to do that, you have to win the will back, and that's that's been the process of my life. Mm. So now I, I've I've managed to step outside of karma. So I'm not I'm not creating karma with willed actions anymore. I'm not trying to make money. I'm not trying to make friends. I'm not trying to influence people. I'm not trying to win awards or or be acknowledged or get followers. I'm just following a direction. And I know it's a true direction because every commandment I get is from a place of love. It's mm-hmm. from a place of kindness. Someone said to me once, how do you know it's, <laughs> how do you know it's God? If you know, it might be the devil. It might be some gin talking to you. And I said, well, if it's a gin talking to me, it's telling me to do a lot of loving things. It's telling me to give a lot of things away. And, and I don't think it's trying to trip me up because I've been doing it for 30 years. <laughs> and everything I'm doing is coming from a place of kindness. So the whole process was about um, looking at the things that were threatening me, looking at the fact, you know, the fact that it wasn't any particular thing that was creating anxiety. It was ignorance. I, I was ignorant about adrenaline. I didn't understand that you can control adrenaline, you know, through certain pranayama, through certain breathing techniques, mm-hmm. and through the right palate, through the right eating, and through the right living, you can reduce anxiety, um, and you can expand awareness So through certain practices. So I started to learn diaphragmatic breathing. I started to, I started to challenge the thoughts. I recognized that if I engaged the thought and it triggered adrenaline, I'd be into a place of fear. I had, I started to understand that I had a choice. I didn't have to engage thoughts. I recognized that thoughts weren't in me. They weren't my thoughts. Thoughts were outside of me in a separate realm. This is something that Aurobindo, Sri Aurobindo articulated very well. He said thoughts are in a separate realm. And they're semi-autonomous 
beings. There's like semi-autonomous thought forms, to quote Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And, and they kind of wandering around, looking for a place to stay, looking for a looking for a human buffet, and they'll land in you. And if you engage them, you incarnate them. You you know they incarnate you. You they they for the period that they're incarnated, they become you. They think they're you, and you think they're you. Mm-hmm. And then you act out and you act them out in the world. I realised that they were out there. And it was no more impersonal. It was no more personal than a bug. If I'm walking through a field and a bug jumps on my leg and bites me and sucks my blood, mm-hmm. it was as impersonal as that. It wasn't personal. It was just, it was just another natural form of energy yeah. that was looking for a, for a free meal. But I recognized that I had the autonomy and the will to stop that from happening just by going, that's not a thought I'm going to engage. That's not a thought I'm going to associate with. So I became but really a bit like my own nightclub. I went into it. If you imagine like when I was working on the doors, they would say, uh, Jeff Thompson's got a big reputation and we've got this new nightclub. Uh, we've got this nightclub and it's full of, uh, full of vagabonds and full of negativity. So we want to bring Jeff Thompson in to clean it up. So the first thing you do is you clean out the nightclub. You get rid of all the negativity, what the Buddhists, the Buddhists would call the defilements, the negative people in there. You get rid of all them. You'd put four burly doormen on the door and you'd stop the negativity coming in. You'd clear the negativity that's already in there. This is, um, in Christianity, this is called kenosis, self-cleansing. And then you'd only allow in good people, you know, people that weren't going to cause trouble. So I treated my body like a nightclub, exactly as I did on the door. Mm. I put doormen at the, at the mind door. I, I developed the, the wisdom and the discernment so I knew what was right to come in and what was wrong to come in. I cleaned out what was in there already. So all of the um, conditioning that was in my body and in my mind, I cleaned that all out. I went in. I wrote about it. I talked about it. I massively, massively studied. And the studying helped me to understand what I was experiencing. It didn't teach me so much as it reminded me or re- helped me to remember. Um, and it helped me to articulate. So my own experiences were like seeds of wisdom. And, the, the, you know, when I would read, say, if I read the Zohar or if I read the Srimad Bhagavatam, you know, the exegesis of Hinduism or the exegesis of, of Kabbalah, they would help me to understand what it was I experienced and take that seed and develop into, into a fully formed oak. So, um, yeah, so I, I realized that, you know, this is a kingdom. Um, and that uh, if I don't know it, my conscious will, my my um, causal will, sorry, my my body of causal will, you know, that's that's the part of us that actively wills in the world and creates karma, create causes actions that create consequence. If I don't recognise that that's my kingdom and that I own it and that I've got to win control, if I don't recognise that, any energy, any passing energy, any passing influence. Any strong voice on the television, any strong voice around the dinner table, you know, in the canteen at work can steal my conscious will and ride it like a stallion. So I started to go, right, okay, so my job is to win my will back. And then when I, once I win, win my will back, like I said, through these exercises, um, I offered my will over to a greater power, to a higher power. Because I, re- I did recognize once I got my will, I understood the Dharma, I understood the law, I understood causation, I understood the, the, the concept of a conscious will, 
uh, but I didn't really understand what my purpose was, why I was here. But this energy communicated with me through meditation, through visions, through prayers, through serendipities, through synchronicities, and said to me, we'll show you what, what your dharma is. Mm. So then I surrendered my will over to this greater will, and it said, okay, write this, talk to this person, give this person five minutes, give this person five years, avoid this person, you know. It just kind of guided me through the labyrinth right. of uh, this mysterious world we live in. Mm. So it's a remarkable story, you know, uh, and and I, I I think one of the things that when you know I, I read I read a lot of your, your your books, you know, that's why I asked you on the show, Jeff. Liked your books, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, reading through kind of um, <clears throat> watch my back uh, and the the journey you went on, the like, and how you came to your initiation and your spiritual initiation uh, and the 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 revelations um that you you received and and how you've been able to bring them out to the world and and really reach um reach men in in i think in a way that uh they're not very approachable you know through their vulnerability of of yeah. fear fear of violence you know, um, and you know, violence materializes in, in, in people's lives uh, in different ways. Um, but I've always felt that it's, a, it's particularly frequent with men, you know, because of our natures. Yeah. Um, or also in, in that kind of space of being, um, being, being reduced to a child really quickly with violence. You know, mm. where you're getting to that mental space of being like, I'm, I'm four, I'm five, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, and it's, you know, people start that journey with martial arts to kind of, I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm also going to have kind of a, a slightly childish reaction. Is I'm going to become a superhero now. I'm going to learn yeah, super yeah. skills and become a superman, you know, and, and just reading through how, how you, you, you've taken that to, to such a level where you've transformed in, in, in such a way that's hugely inspiring, you know, really inspiring, oh, you. you know, and, uh, and there's two pieces in, in particular that have stayed with me for, for, for a long time, you know, which is, you know, you talk about truth and imparting truth and, and, and that for me is, is, is the recognition that the factor that defines truth is that it, it stays with you for so long that it, it just penetrates all the kind of the, the background noise and stays with you yeah. and your, your work on forgiveness and your work on creative energy, um, were hugely potent, hugely potent, you know, um, it's like, I'm Irish, you know, grudges for life, not just for Christmas. It's, it's you know, it's, it's in there, it's in there, you know? Yeah. And and I remember kind of listening to your work talking about forgiveness and going like I, I'm still I'm still fucked off at somebody from second class in school. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And and thinking again, like, you know, what's that doing to me? Who who's running the show? Am I in yeah. the driving seat? You know, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um yeah. and powerful, isn't it? We're super powerful. Yeah, it's incredible. And 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 I was wondering if I could ask if you could talk to 
some of your, your, your thoughts on forgiveness and on creativity. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the thing I learned about forgiveness was that we can't forgive. We haven't got that power. It's not a human power. It isn't a human attribute. It's a divine attribute. So people sin against us and we sin against other people. Um, but really they're sinning against the law and we're sinning against the law. So somebody might say to you, I might say to you, well, I forgive you. I haven't really got the power to do that. And if you still, if you, if you're, if you're still holding that, um, you know, if your unkindness, if I've forgiven you for something, but that, but that is still in you, that unkindness is still in you and the propensity to be unkind is still in you. It's not going to go anywhere. We can only be forgiven by God or by, uh, the reciprocal universe. So what I learned from the deep investigation was that I don't have the power to forgive other people. When I forgave the guy that sexually abused me, I felt very proud of myself. But as I walked away, I recognized it was a quiet conceit. I didn't have the ability to forgive him. That was, that was over to a bigger law than me. Just because I'd said I've forgiven you didn't mean that he was, you know, redeemed from that. This man would have to go away at some point and face that himself. So what I did was I gave him over. This is what I recognized. We can't forgive as in we can't pardon, but we can we can give it over. We can remove the stain of abuse and give it back to them or, and give it back to a pal that can redeem it. I realized as I walked away that it wasn't really him that needed to be forgiven. It was me because I'd committed so many crimes. I'd been violent. I'd been a criminal. I'd been, you know, I'd been unfaithful. I'd committed, I think if I was around, if I'd have been around at the time of Moses, it'd have been a 13th commandment with my name on it. So I recognized that I needed forgiving and, and, and that's, I did have, I didn't have the power to forgive myself because I wasn't the same. I've committed a crime against the law, against the universal law. So the only thing I can do is I, I, I haven't got the power to forgive, but I have got the power to, to repent. And repent just means to return or to repair or to find refuge. It means to return to the still center. But of course, you know, people think that. You know, that repentance is a, is a soft option. It's an easy solution. It's not. The return home is always the most difficult because when we return home, of course, to get back to the still center, we have to go past all of those dead bodies in the patio. That lovely old saying, I'd love to dig that treasure up. That's dug, that, that, you know, that's 10 feet down in my garden, but I'd have to go past at least three dead bodies before I got to it because we've, we've all of us are, we are all guilty. We've all made mistakes. Whether we're crucifying somebody with gossip outside Costa on a Friday afternoon, or whether we have unkind thoughts about our neighbor, or whether we shake our fist at Donald Trump on the television, we've all part, we've all partaken in hate and anger. I recognize that I had so many things I needed to repent. But people always say, well, before you forgive others, you need to forgive yourself, but we can't forgive ourselves anyway. So the word forgiveness is kind of been hijacked and it's not been articulated. If you look in, in the dictionary, in the Oxford dictionary, I think it says something like forgiveness is to give, is to let go of the anger, let go of the hate, let go of the self-anger and self-hate. It just doesn't talk about anything about the person that's hurt you. And of course, we are all guilty. We, we all contribute to the karmic fatberg every time we think or say or do a, a, a negative willed act. So I recognized that um, I couldn't forgive other people. That was a quiet conceit, but I could give, I could give them over. I could look at them and say, you've done this to me. 
and in and in a large sense, this person's a victim himself because he's a victim of other forces and other karmic things that have happened to him. I can give you over to a force, you know, that will level the hills and fill the valley. So my way of forgiving was just to go, I see this has happened and you've damaged me. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you over to, to the law so that the law can rebalance that. And I'm just going to look at the things I can clean. And for me to clean them, I mean, I even realized I wasn't able to atone them myself either. All I was able to do was look at them. So the moment I said, I'm ready to repent, I'm ready to return, I'm ready to repair, these feelings, these old sins started to rise up in me and I would write them down. You know, I'd write, I mean, I've written 50 books, 15 films, you know, five, six stage plays, thousands of articles, all about the mistakes I've made, all about my sins, all about the, the wrongs I've committed. They're all brutally honest. And that was my way of atonement. So I just brought them out and they were, uh, they, the work uh, wasn't done by me. The work was done by God. So I brought them out and looked at them without blame and just said, that was me. I did that. I'm deeply ashamed. And I went through that process of mourning and then I just give them over to the greater universe. And that was, was clean for me. So I would say to people that are out there now who feel as though, um, you know, they've got a grudge. I would say, let go of it as quickly as you can because the grudge binds you to the person that you've got a grudge for. Resentment binds you to the source of resentment. You become entangled with them. Because the guy that abused me when I was 11, even though I hadn't seen him for 20 or 30 years, was still abusing me when I was 40. He was still climbing inside my body. He was still taking over my autonomy, over my um, causal body, and he was still acting in me and as me and through me, and he was abusing me. And when it spilled out into the world, I was violent. That was his energy working through me. It wasn't really even his energy because he'd been hijacked by the same energy. So he passed it on to me like a bad seed. So I recognized that even though we were disparate, even though we were separated by time and space, this man was still abusing me and I was letting him. But I didn't recognize it. Once I recognized it, I goes, okay, this guy's in me. And the only way I'm going to get him out of it is by forgiving him. So I, when I forgave him, it was an exorcism. It was, um, uh, what do they call it? The deliverance. I delivered him from my body. That's what I did. But when you look at the, the Romans 12, 20, St. Paul's letters to the Romans, uh, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. If in so doing, Thou shalt heat coals of fire in his head. But it's a parable. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's a simile or a, a, an allegory. It's basically saying that people abuse because they're enigmas. They, they haven't got the food and they haven't got the wine or the blood of knowledge. So when I met this person who abused me, I gave him that. I said to him, you've rationalized what you did to me when I was a kid. You've rationalized it. You've sanitized it somehow. You've convinced yourself that you were trying to form a relationship and it was okay. He said, but it was a lie. So I, I, I gave him back his hot coal. I gave him, I destroyed his rationalization. I said to him, you abused me and it fucked my life. I said, but I'm going to forgive you. So I weakened him by telling him the truth. This is what they say in Kabbalah, before you forgive someone, first injure them. So I injured him by saying, this is the truth. You've rationalized it. You've pretended it's okay. Um, and in somewhere in your head, you think it was fine what you did. You think it was a, 
uh, it wasn't an abuse, but it was an abuse. And I'm telling you the truth. And this truth shot through. The moment he was weak, I said to him, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. And I gave him over to reciprocity. The moment he did that, I've given, he's, he's put a dark parasite in me and he's stolen some of my autonomy. It's what the rabbis say. If you see somebody that's hurt you, chase after them. Do them service because they have something of yours and you need it back. So when you, when you give them back the hot coal of abuse, you take back your autonomy. He's no longer in me. He's no longer parasiting on my will. So anything that rises up in me that comes from the negative, I immediately observe it. They call this the Moses eye. Moses looked at the Israelite and killed him with a look. This is in the Old Testament. It's basically saying that Moses observed, it's basically saying the observer witnessed the rising of emotion, witnessed the feelings, and just looked at it and didn't engage it and didn't identify it, and it just died in the air. It has no life without engagement. So anything that rose up, that became my battlefield. That became the greater jihad. So lust would rise up, and it was this, you know, this... um distorted parasite in me it would rise up and I would look at it and I, would, I wouldn't engage it. I wouldn't identify with it. In fact, I would just observe it emotionlessly without trying to change it until it dissipated. Sometimes I would watch it just completely explode. Other times I would just watch the face of it be ripped off. It would have no life, but you have to have the courage to stand there right in the very center of the storm and feel all of the emotions and watch it until that happens. This is what I, I did with forgiveness. But I also, so I've forgiven this guy. I've taken back my autonomy. I've given him back his parasite. He's gone off. And now it's up to him whether or not he wants to uh, repent and find peace because he can. He can still do that. We've all got that ability. I went off and started to repair. I no longer concern myself about what he did to me or what he did to anybody else. I concern myself by the fact that I battered people. It was all done as a displacement and it was all done because they got a parasite in me, but it was still done on my watch and I still allowed it to happen. So that was stuck in the plumbing. So I started to work on cleaning what I'd done wrong. I can't change what other people have done other than recognize that there is a greater law at play and it balances all the books eventually. You know, it doesn't need our witness to rebalance itself. And I just started to work on what I knew I'd done wrong. Not just what I'd done wrong, but what I was still doing wrong. And I started to clean that. Started to put the antigen or the attribute of compassion inside me and the attribute of love and the attribute of repentance. This is from the Holy Quran. And they went inside me like medicines and started to work with me. The first thing I did was I stopped doing negative things. I stopped thinking negative things. I stopped acting in a negative way. Um, and I started to educate myself away from negativity and educate myself towards positivity. So the biggest thing I learned was that we can't forgive other people, but we can give them over to a law that can. We can't forgive ourselves, but we can repent. And it doesn't matter who you are out there, and it doesn't matter what you've done. Repentance is always an option. This is why he says in the Christian Bible, how many times should I forgive my abuser? Seven times? No. This is what Jesus Christ says. No. 47 times seven. And that's a, an allegory for inf- infinity. We've got to forgive. We've got to act godlike. We've got to forgive the amount of times that God forgives us. So we're always being given a chance to forgive, uh, to, to repent. 
And that chance is open to everybody. In fact, the people who have committed the greatest crimes have the more propensity towards sainthood. They have more potential than anybody else. Because it's the, it's, you know, it's the, um, uh, the, you know, the, 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 what do they call it? The returning son, the son that returns home after living a profligate life. So I start, I, because I, I was able to identify that I can't forgive other people. That's a quiet conceit and it's a, dis, and it's a cunning distraction. I stopped trying to forgive them. And I started to leave that to causation, to uh, reciprocity, sorry. And I started to look at myself and realized I was riddled with errors, riddled with ignorance, riddled with mistakes. And I started to make my whole life, my whole raison d'etre, um, a journey of understanding these things, getting more, uh, getting rid of the ignorance and start to work on myself. I think they call it apophatic theology. I started to reduce everything that was negative in order to expand my conscious net. Every time I contracted the ego, the ego, the consciousness expanded. Every time the consciousness expanded, the ego was contracted. So we can't forgive other people. But that doesn't mean we don't, you know, we might still need an apology. We might still need our day in court. We might need to seek redress. It doesn't mean one or the other. It just means that we haven't got the ability to pardon them. When we recognize that we are bound, we are bound to the, the, our resentment binds us to the, per, the person that presents us. When we recognize that we entangle ourselves with them and that there's no longer a difference between them and us, they're in us and we're in them, you start to think, okay, I'm going to win back my autonomy. Do I want to be held captive by a guy that abused me 40 years ago? Do I, do I want to be held captive by somebody that, um, you know, by, by a wife that left me 10 years ago or by a boyfriend that cheated on me? Do I want to be held captive by that? My resentment keeps me captive. Once we recognize that, we can let go of re resentment. And we are doing nothing less than winning back our autonomy. Jeff, is, the hour and a half has, has whizzed by. And um, I mean, has happened, it's, yeah. it's been tremendous, tremendous um, uh, talking to you, really has. And I hope I can tempt you back onto the show at some stage um, yeah. to continue the conversation. Um, for those, uh, for those people who want to find out more about you and more about your work, where's the the best place for them to to do do so? Um, I've got an Instagram page run by Gabriella, and if you wouldn't mind passing this interview on yeah. to her, that'd be great. Yeah, no problem. Um, uh, so people want to. That's the only place I can be contacted through Gabriella at mm. this at yeah. uh, my Instagram. It's, it's it's Jeff Thompson official. Jeff underscore Thompson mm. underscore official. Um. And these things we're talking about, I've written a book called um, The Divine CEO, and I've written a book called Notes from a Factory Floor. Notes from a Factory Floor is, is basically about the beginning of this interview, mm. about, you know, how I was depressed and on the doors and, and all that, all the stuff I learned. And The Divine CEO is this stuff we're talking about now, about aligning the bodies, mm. winning back autonomy and all the rest of it. So they can go to those books. Um, but if you go onto the website, all of this, I talk about all this, not the website, the um, uh, the Instagram page. I talk about all this stuff, yeah. and there's lo there's loads and loads and loads and loads of free content. So if they don't if they don't feel like they want to invest in a book, then just go on there. There's a lot of free content. There's mm -hmm. hundreds of hours of stuff on me online talking about this stuff. Yeah, um, and it, and if it leads you to um, a deeper study, then that's great. Hopefully, if it's done its job, it acts as an intercessor, mm -hmm. like just make make people think and you know. So, mm -hmm. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be curious. 
I'm going to suspend being afraid for a little while and I'm going to be curious. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And um, have a lovely new, have a lovely uh, New Year's. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, probably be in bed to be honest, but uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> have a pajama day. Yeah, just a, uh, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure and an honour. And um, and I, I hope to speak to you again in the future. No, have a lovely day. Take care. Talk soon and take care. Bye.